0: As Meredith just shared, we're going to hear one of the moments of lament for Israel found in the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, beginning with verse 1. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus, says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. If you remember where we left off with the prophet Jeremiah a couple weeks ago when I preached from chapter 32, you'll remember that Israel is not in a good place. The year is sometime around 594 BCE. The situation is unimaginably awful. It's been three years since the nation of Judah was defeated in battle and the city of Jerusalem overthrown by the invading Babylonian army. The national leaders of Israel have been driven across the desert to live in exile as prisoners of war in Babylon. Imagine, the nation has collapsed. No one's in charge. There is no government. At this point, you might be thinking, now wait, is that a bad thing? But think about it. Imagine that the president, the cabinet, the Senate, and the House of Representatives, our governor, our state representatives, mayors, city council, and school board members have all been shipped off to Babylon. Some of you, I imagine, are hoping now that I say all in favor, say yes. <laughs> but in all seriousness, this situation that Jeremiah describes is perhaps the most significant crisis point for the people of Israel to this point in their history. In the year, in the year 597 BCE, the Babylonian army invaded and seized the city of Jerusalem In that first invasion, its leading citizens, artisans, merchants, nobility, they were all sent into exile in Babylon, a thousand miles away into what is now modern-day Iraq. Ten years later, another wave of exiles joined them, and the entire city of Jerusalem, including the temple, the center of Israel's religious life and its faith, Is destroyed and reduced to nothing more than a pile of rubble. From what we know of this event in history, Jeremiah himself should have been one of those leaders sent away. He comes from a family of priests in the tribe of Benjamin, and early on in this book, we learn of his call to be a prophet to the people of Jerusalem. But for whatever reason, Jeremiah is not taken into exile by his peers. He stays behind in Jerusalem to bear witness to what God is doing. And it's from there that he writes this entire book. But Jeremiah's readers have a hard time hearing and believing his message. They're utterly distraught about how these events have unfolded. The Israelites have been told over and over and over that they are God's people that they are special, that they have been chosen by God to live in this land. In their wildest imagination, they cannot believe things are meant to turn out the way that they have. And so to those shell-shocked exiles, Jeremiah, Jeremiah sends this pastoral letter. Without a doubt, They're looking for some endorsement of their anger and frustrations and their righteous indignation that having that having been marched out of their long promised homeland, God will seek revenge. What they want are angry, judgmental words about how God intends to rain down retribution on the heads of Israel's enemies. That's what we find in Psalm 137 that Louis just read for us moments ago. Psalm 137 was likely written by those exiles in Babylon. And you can hear in their words, their grief. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? But we also hear their anger. We hear bloodlust and rage Blessed are those who pay you back for what you've done to us. Psalm 137 is not Israel's finest hour. Blessed are those who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. This is pure, unadulterated vengeance, born out of confusion and sorrow and fear, but vengeance nevertheless. And so when the exiles receive this letter from Jeremiah, what they hear is the very last thing they expect or want, because if they want anger, they get anything but. What Jeremiah says is this, sit tight, keep calm, settle in. This exile is not going to be over today or tomorrow or next month or even next year. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And that's not just 70 years either. That's a biblical 70 years, which as we know means they're going to be staying there for as long as God wants them there. So they might as well settle in. And while you're settling in, Jeremiah says, here's what you're going to do. Build houses. You're going to be there a while, so you might as well build houses and live in them. Build houses and plant gardens and orchards and vineyards and enjoy the harvest. All those things take time, and they'll keep you busy. They'll take your mind off everything, and they'll help you keep calm. Then Jeremiah says here's what else you're going to do. You're going to get married. And if you're already married, you're going to let your children get married and let your children have grandchildren and let those grandchildren have children. You're going to be around for a while, Jeremiah says. So keep calm and get comfortable. Settle down. Put down roots. God is not done with you yet. And apparently what Jeremiah prophesies actually happens because Iraq had a flourishing Jewish community up until just recent history, up until just before the time of Saddam Hussein. They were descendants of these Israelites who were exiled in 597 BCE. At last report, about 15 years ago, there were only seven or eight Jews still living in Baghdad, a tiny remnant of a community that once numbered in the hundreds of thousands. But 2,500 years earlier, the Israelites in Babylon couldn't believe any of that would ever happen. They listened in stunned disbelief as Jeremiah gave them perhaps the most difficult instruction of all Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you. Seek the welfare and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Seriously? Seek the welfare of the city, this city, this home of our enemies. For all intents and purposes, what Jeremiah is proposing is treason. Every instinct says exactly the opposite defend yourself, protect yourself, fight back. But Jeremiah says, no, keep calm. Get out there, get invested, pray for the city, love the city, for in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. The Jerusalem Bible puts it this way. Seek the peace of the city, for in its peace, you'll find your peace. And hidden in both of those words, peace and welfare, is a Hebrew word that I know that you all know. Shalom. Seek the shalom, the wholeness, the health of your enemies, for in their shalom, you'll find your own. God has this annoying habit of expecting us to love the people we we would most like to ship off to Mars. Jesus Jesus says it even more directly. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But apparently, he wasn't the first one to come up with that idea. Seek the welfare of the city. One of the tasks of settling into exile is to seek the good of your oppressor. To pray for the welfare of those who've deported you. To ask God's blessing on those you, who have destroyed your way of life. What Jeremiah says is that our instinctive hatred of the enemy is in direct opposition to what God asks of us. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. It turns out that until there is peace and welfare and shalom for all of us, there will be no peace or welfare or shalom for any of us. I read a story this week from a Presbyterian mission yearbook from a few years ago. It made me think about this morning's passage. At 10 a.m. in the morning on August 14th, 2013, Pastor Hanai Jack of the Benai Mazar Presbyterian Church in Egypt received a phone call telling him that a motorcyclist had ridden past the church and thrown a Molotov cocktail over the gate into the church's courtyard. The town of ben Mazar is in a rural region known as Upper Egypt, about three hours from Cairo. Extremists had led multiple attacks on Christian sites in Upper Egypt that day, burning churches and other buildings, including five Presbyterian congregations. In the case of ben Mazar Church, the Molotov cocktail burned out with no damage, but Pastor Hanai who was away from the city at a conference, urged restraint from his congregation. You see, earlier that same day in Cairo, government troops broke up a demonstration that had been going on for about six weeks, protesting the removal of President Morsai. By three o'clock that afternoon, when the news of the violence in Cairo reached ben Mazar, a large mob had gathered outside the church, and began to break into the property. The cement block they used to break through the gate still sits outside the sanctuary door. Benai Mazar's church property includes the sanctuary, an adjoining social services and youth center, a bookstore, a canteen, as well as the pastor's apartment. After breaking through the doors, the mob began to steal anything of value and destroy anything too big to carry. Air conditioners were thrown out windows. Stucco and plaster were beaten off the walls of the sanctuary. And the sound equipment used for worship was loaded onto trucks and taken away. Protesters climbed the gate to destroy the cross that topped the entrance to the church. And then they set fire to the building. A fire that burned for two days. The Benai Mazar Presbyterian Church was founded and built in 1905. The adjoining social services building only half-completed houses a vibrant outreach program that allows the congregation to serve its community. In recent years, the church has helped to put plumbing in 60 rural homes and offers assistance to over 600 families every year. A health clinic on the first floor... During the protests, was reduced to rubble. When they talked about the loss of their building, church members said again and again that none of their outreach would stop because of the riot. They said that if a person came to the church for help, even if they knew he or she had been involved in the attack, they would not turn that person away. It's a remarkable declaration of forgiveness and Christian charity. It's a group of believers who have every right to be angry, every right to hunker down and to push back against the outsiders who caused them harm. But they didn't do that. Instead, they settled down, they kept calm, and they prayed for the shalom, the peace, for the welfare of their city. I think about those Egyptian Presbyterians and what they endured and the unconditional love they showed through it all. And then I think about my own pitiful life and how annoyed I get when someone posts something on Facebook that I disagree with or when a commentator on TV promotes some political viewpoint that I think is ridiculous. I think about our nation So deeply divided over ideology right now that any hint of civil discourse quickly becomes all but impossible. There's my way, we think, and then there's the wrong way. Who are those people who absolutely rub you the wrong way every single time they open their mouths? Maybe it's a neighbor either a neighbor who lives across the street or a neighbor who lives across the globe. Or maybe it's the neighbor who sits across the office from you every single day. What would it be like if instead of getting angry at that person, we chose to pray for them? What if we prayed for God's mercy and blessing for them? Psychologists have been saying it for a long time. The person who's most hurt by anger is the person who cannot let it go. So maybe it's time to heed the words of the ancient prophet, to keep calm, to settle down, and to seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, we find our own. Amen.
1: Let us turn to God in prayer. Good and gracious God, you who looks with loving compassion on all of your creation, we lift up our prayers to you. There are so many in this world, O God, that are suffering, those who have been displaced by flood and fire, war and famine. We lift up those lives that were affected by Hurricane Ian, those who lost lives, lost homes, lost their hope. O God, may they be fed and cared for. May their hope be rekindled. May they find kindness on their journeys to renewal. Lead them to safe places to find comfort under the shelter of your wings. Allow them to know that their home rests in you. For those who have found themselves where they did not expect to be, O Lord, hear our prayer. For those who have experienced loss, loss of homes, jobs, good health, and loss of loved ones, may they find your love and the light of your promises to be enough for their next steps. We especially lift up those families and loved ones who mourn the death of their own. We pray for the families of Dale Teague, especially for Pam. We pray for Bob Peppel and family Elsa and Lars Schuler. We pray for Betty Frierson's family and we ask that you would surround all those in mourning with love and comfort as they face the new reality with their lov- without their loved one. Oh God, lead us to a place of hope to find glimpses of joy in our journey No matter how hard they are, bind up our wounds so tenderly and fill them again with your goodness and mercy. For those who grieve, for those who lament and seek a path forward toward hope, O Lord, hear our prayer. For those who have wandered far from you, who feel forgotten, forsaken, or fearful, For those that feel as though they live in exile, may they find that you are not so far off after all. May they trust in your prodigal, extravagant love and run into your outstretched arms with joy. For those who are lost and in need of God's welcome, O Lord, hear our prayer. And lastly, we pray for those of us who know the abundance of your blessings, those who live in safety, who are healthy and secure. We thank you for your abundant gifts and many blessings, and we ask that you would embolden us to be agents of your blessings to others as we seek the peace, justice, and prosperity of this city. Lead us to those whom you look upon with compassion, the overworked, the underfed, the neglected, and the depressed. Help us care for those who need a little more love, for those that are undergoing procedures, for those that will be going through surgery. We lift up Phyllis Driver as she prepares for her pacemaker. Oh God, fill us with your grace and mercy and love that we may be healers in your name. For those in need of what we have to offer, O Lord, hear our prayer. And hear us now as we pray that prayer your Son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us continue to worship God through our tithes and offerings.